This is Artist Soapbox. Through interviews and original scripted audio fiction, we deliver stories that speak to your hearts and your minds. Hey friends, I'm excited to open the 2023 season with a conversation with writer Marjorie Hudson about her beautiful novel, Indigo Field. It does not surprise me that Indigo Field is being described as among the best of contemporary Southern fiction. Marjorie Hudson is a longtime writer of fiction and nonfiction, a committed educator and community member, advocate, and activist. I love this conversation. Throughout it, Marjorie describes her creative process, dropping helpful gems about craft, as well as offering what I'd call thoughts about writing while living. You know what I mean? The connection between what we write and our values, our interests, and our lives. Marjorie reads three sections from Indigo Field at the end of our discussion. I like them there because of everything that we talked about prior to her reading. But if you are a person who likes your dessert first, then skip to about seven minutes from the end, listen to the excerpts from Indigo Field, and then start again from the top. Please see the links in the show notes and check out her website, MarjorieHudson.com. Enjoy. Hi, Marjorie. How are you? I am well. Thank you, Tamara. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. So you have done so much as a writer and educator in our local community and in the writing community. So off the bat, I want to encourage listeners to check out your website to get a sense of the breadth of your work. But in this conversation, we are focusing in on your novel, Indigo Field. First of all, Congratulations on the release of this fabulous book, and thank you for writing it and sharing it with the world. I'm enjoying it so much. Thank you so much. I just means the world to me to get this book out there after working on it for 30 years. So yes, it's a lovely moment for me. Well, yes, my understanding is that in some form, these characters and the bones of this novel have been with you for a while. So tell us more about that. Right. First character who came to me was the Colonel, Colonel Randolph Jefferson Lee, and he started on a day when I was walking my dog on my farm road, and I saw a man jogging, he's very trim, he's very fit, an older man in, you know, a jogging outfit coming in my direction, and he was a fish out of water. Nobody ever jogged on my road, and people didn't actually dress like that in my part of the rural South. And I thought, where in the world did he come from? And then I realized, oh, gosh, there's the retirement village across the highway. Probably he came from there. And then as he was passing me, he turned and looked at me and there was a look of utter devastation in his eyes. And it just about knocked me down. It was so hard to see. And then he just kept running Hmm. and I kept walking and It haunted me for days. I was writing fiction at the time, and I remember turning to my friend Dee on a walk a few days later and telling her about this and saying, I'm going to write a novel about that man. I had never written a novel before. I was writing short stories, and it was very ambitious of me, but by golly, I, I did it. And so many other things are folded into the novel, but that was just a moment that I can identify in my life that sparked. And stories often come to me that way. And that's how 
that character got started. He is featured in your book of stories, Accidental Birds of the Carolinas. Is that right? That's right. And the character Jolene, who's also in the novel. And let me just tell you, here's a writer's trick. I got so frustrated waiting to be able to finish and really feel like I'd finished the novel. I knew I wasn't done. And I had a story collection I was working on. So I mined the novel to fill out the story collection. And, you know, one of the things writers do is we spy on other writers, you know, how they do that. Well, I'd seen it done before. I'd heard of it being done before. I knew that Sue Monk Kidd had taken a short story and turned it into Secret Life of Bees. Well, you know, I need to fill out this collection and get it out there. So I used Rihanna. He's the He's the title story for Accidental Birds of the Carolinas, a short story collection about people moving to the South and trying to find a home and trying to settle. And I also filled out the collection with the backstory that I wrote for Jolene. And Jolene's backstory in the novel, she's a farm widow and a single mom. But in the story collection, I tell the story of her growing up years and her meeting the love of her life and going to college and ending up living in Amor County. So everything that happened before what happens in the novel is in the story collection. So, uh, yeah, so I've been working on these these characters for a while now. Uh, and Miss Reba shows up in the novella as well. So they, you know, I live with them for a long time. I had a full draft in 1999, or almost a full draft, but I knew it needed development. And then I started developing it while I was working on other books and, of course, working various jobs and starting a business. I started a business called Kitchen Table Writers, where I teach creative writing for everyone from beginners and memoirists to post-MFA and college teachers. And I just kept coming back to writing about Indigo Field. I couldn't, you know, I was obsessed and mm. obsession is a good thing for a writer. <laughs> so I just kept coming back and I just wanted to nail it. And it took it took a long time. All right. This is very interesting because I made the assumption that you started with the short stories and then took some of those characters and fleshed that out into the novel. But you're telling me you did the reverse. You started with the novel and then mined from the short stories. That's really interesting. That's right. That's right. It's kind of counter the story that, that we hear from most people that I do things a little differently. Yeah. Surprising. I read somewhere, I think it was actually at the end of Indigo Field and your acknowledgments, that at one point, this was a 700-page novel. Where did those pages go? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I had a storyline about the farmer's market. I had a storyline about an old man by the side of the road who was taking care of his children in a trailer park. And I had Miss Reba's love life included. And all these parts were fascinating to me. And they still are fascinating to me. But I learned as part of my journey as a, as a novelist, a first-time novelist, that when you focus the drama by taking out drama that doesn't relate to the central theme, the drama rises. Mm -hmm. You know, And of course, every screenwriter knows that. I didn't know that. I liked writing long. I had heard somewhere that when you write a novel, 
you can just write, you know, for a really long time, on and on. You can just go on and on about whatever whatever interests you. And I had read novels that were like that. And I had enjoyed that kind of work. But it really wasn't true. I had an idea. It was complex. I wanted to express the world I was discovering and how how separate worlds still are from each other and how they crash into each other in the rural South and expose history. So that's a little bit heady, but I started with place and I was in love with where I was living. I'm from Washington, D.C. and I had just fallen in love and suddenly decided to move to Chatham County, North Carolina. And it started with being in love with the place and being in discovery about the people, the history, indigenous history, black history, and all those things came from living my life. So while I was writing fiction, I was also discovering my community. And a couple things happened, Tamara, that I like to say were folded into the the beginning idea of the novel. One was that I was researching the 20 nations of Native people in North and South Carolina for an essay, and I got to stand on the site of the um, largest Tuscarora village in this community and hear about what was buried underneath the soil there. It's the place where the Tuscarora War started, the war which ended up changing the lives of the 20 nations dramatically. And it haunted me. What was buried under the soil haunted me. And so that stayed with me. Also, I knew that my neighbors, when they plowed, often there would be, or or down at Jordan Lake, after rain, just copious arrowheads would find their ways to the surface. So we were living on the bones of a dead community that seemed alive to me. And then after time, I also was discovering that Native people from many of these nations were part of my daily life. I met John Blackfeather at a river blessing for a river festival. There were Lumbee in my community. I knew there were descendants of Hatteras people on Hatteras Island. And I just started discovering this essential fact about community that people didn't talk about or seemed to be much aware of and certainly was discovery for me. The other thing is that I was visiting my daughter's school one day and discovered that nobody knew who this school was named for, least of all me. It was Horton Middle School. Some people believed the school was named for a white judge, but black people in my community knew it was named for a black man, the first black man to publish a book in the South. He sold his poems to buy his freedom. His story is documented in three books of poetry. I became obsessed with this life of this actual person that was so hidden. And I became obsessed with the hiddenness of Black history and Indigenous history. Uh, So I wanted to express that somehow in a complex story that lift history up. The way I discovered to do that was by putting three families together and having a field and a pine grove in common. And so history rises up through the device of being connected to the land. Right. One of the many things that I'm enjoying so much about this novel is the specificity, the details. It's very deep. There's so much research that I feel that you did putting this together. How do you track that as you're compiling this? 
from a practical point of view, how are you keeping track of all of those little bits and pieces? Oh, my goodness, Tamara. Okay, let me start. I have a journalism background, and so you have to have sources. And I believed that history should be documented. And so I read books. I took notes. I have boxes. I still have boxes and boxes of notes under a quilt upstairs. And this was before the internet was widely used for research. Uh, The internet changed dramatically during the time I was researching this. And I began to be able to have access to resources like lexicons of the Tuscarora language and timelines of, of Native American history and access to tribal sites of living nations of people. So I began to have access to material that wasn't available to me that was just an instinctual direction that I was going in. So I tracked things in a very messy way. I confess, messy, but, you know, file folders, post-it notes, notebooks, yellow notebooks. And at some point, I made a chart. I created my own system of table of contents. I made subheads for every single um, scene and the subheads then could be sorted by the character name and the subject um, and the time that it took place and details that took place. So I had these massive charts. So then with these subheads, I began to see my story arcs that I had just made up without guidance from any kind of study of craft books. And so I sorted by character. I saw what the arcs were. I read each scene in order of the character's name, and then how to weave them together and how to create a timeline. And that gave me a a lot of trouble because I had too much. As we said before, it was seven or 800 pages. But you know, what I was trying to get at was like telling you everything I knew, you know, trying to pull it all together. So to winnow it down required help from a writing group, particularly my good friend, mystery writer, Karen Pullen. Um, she helped me just kind of see what was essential and what was not so essential to the story. I also had the benefit of regular retreats at Weymouth Center for the Arts and Humanities and some fellowship retreats to places where you could sit for four or five weeks and just roll around on the floor groaning (laughs) until you figured out how to do it. So I don't recommend that method. But I think for writers who are trying to get at something, you're trying to find out what they know by writing it, which keeps the prose lively and keeps it passionate, that that's often the kind of struggle we really must go through. I'm glad I did it. Glad it's over. I bet. How did you find the patience to work on this? And do all of all of your charts and all of your rolling on the floor over the years. How did you do that? I'm such an impatient writer, and I feel like I would have abandoned this or maybe done some shortcuts. How did you stay true to what you wanted to create despite the amount of time and work that it took? Right. I think the quality that I have that allows me to keep going for something like this is stubbornness, (laughs) not patience. I am also impatient. So I just believed in myself. I am a self-starter. I have been 
you know, for a long time. I have been since I left my parental home and I'm very stubbornly follow my own nose on certain things. And with writing, it seemed, you know, with my experience with some early publications with stories and poems, to do things differently, to write from, you know, the passion that I have in a way that I wanted to write in an inclusive way was against conventional wisdom. And there's something in me that really enjoys defying conventional wisdom. So I think that the modern novel writing, the convention for it is to take two years and follow the story arc, the classic story arcs, and really stick to just one or two characters. It was not that interesting to me. Uh, and I had a vision, so that helped me stay true and keep coming back. And I did take breaks. I published two other books during that time, each of which had elements that taught me more. And I got a lot of no's. I got a lot of rejections. I, I sent it out pretty early on. And of course, it was way too long and disorganized. And by the time I sent it out more recently, the whole publishing system in New York had kind of gone a little crazy and had changed the rules about how long a novel could be and, and you know, whether you could comfortably write about racism or cross boundaries into points of view that were different from your own birth family. And I, I just have a lot of passion about that. I have a lot to say. I spend a lot of time in different communities. I spent 27 years working to raise up Black history and being part of a Black history movement in my community. And uh, of course, I was meeting Native American people. I met most recently an Okanichi man who told me that the finished product is a trickster tale, which I, I love. But back to the point, there was something that was unspoken and hidden that I wanted to stand up for. And that's what kept me going. I just, I just couldn't stand it that I was so ignorant about the wholeness of the world I lived in in the South and that so many of my peers in my community also did not really understand where they were living in the South. And as, as I lived longer in the South, uh, of course, in recent years when the novel was uh, all but complete, We've had this really interesting moment where people are removing Confederate statues. And so people in the South are really looking at history differently. And that, and I, I was very encouraged by that. It made me excited that people might understand what I was trying to do here, which is to tell the true stories of people around me that I've imagined based on, on what I know about my community and letting that shine, you know, letting it be understood through the art of writing in an empathic point of view. I had to put on my superwoman cape and bring out my empathic superpowers in order to cross boundaries and barriers and into the minds of different kinds of characters. Some people might notice that I wrote from the point of view, at least of two elderly characters during a time when I was in my early 40s. So I was crossing that boundary as well. Right now I'm about, you know, I'm heading into the ages they are now. I'm collecting social security. So that was fun to like live into the minds of people who are very different part of life than I was at the time. 
That's all so interesting. If you released a novel, this this novel, two years after you started writing it, how would it be different than what you released in March of 2023? And I don't mean so much skill and technique, but I mean, what ideas do you think would be similar? And what do you think has changed just by living your life over this time and the meaning that you're making from the story? It's a little hard to answer because I think my intuitive powers saw, you know, through a glass darkly many years ago, what I see now uh, right in front of our faces, which is that Black Lives Matter and that things are different for Black people everywhere um, as far as justice being served. And, you know, when, when I was first inspired to write this, I had a friend who whispered stories to me about local lynching. I was shocked that I had that knowledge that most people didn't like to think about. And I had the knowledge that intuitively that if I were a Black person living in my community who knew that, that there would be certain sense of danger mm. always with me. So I intuited very early on the things that are happening now that I see coming to the surface. For example, I'm a member of my local NAACP because of the research of the Equal Justice Initiative. We now have documentation of six lynchings that happened in my community in the 20th century, and we have chosen to go through a ceremony to honor the victims and their families and to grieve with them. So the things that I believed I was doing by creating a fiction to honor the missing history are happening now on the surface in real life. So that's a little eerie Mm. for me. It's almost like Tom Wolfe, you know, the great kind of novelist, journalist, madman of our recent, more recent years has written that he has intuited things and put them in novels that actually end up coming true after he writes them. So that's a kind of weird thing that happens to novelists. You, you're very sticky. You know, you're very porous to your community and to a knowledge that is ineffable that you don't have a factual background for. So when I did my research, I went around, you know, looking for confirmation of things that I was just sensing because of my relationships to people when I was doing my my activist work in the Black community or my research in the Indigenous community. So the difference is, I guess I have more confidence in what I'm expressing that it will be received Mm. and understood. I'm writing about how ignorant white people are about Black history. And, you know, my ignorance is, I'm, I'm on that journey every day. I mean, I'm learning things all the time. So I guess, you know, the answer is not so much that I added things to the story or that my understanding changed is that I've watched history change. I've watched the acknowledgement of history change and feels a little less, a little less like I'm really out of, out of the mainstream. Right. You know, it's almost as though my boat has been in those waters and now the other boats are there too. So. I was pretty sure this book would never be understood, even if it was published. I've done some things that people, unless they're doing really, really close read for craft, will probably not get. For example, I'm starting with a white man who's upper middle class. He's a pretty accomplished guy 
who lives in a kind of separate white community where that's a common way to live. And it's the way that most, I think, most readers of general fiction and literary fiction would be more familiar with than with the world across the highway. But I started there because that's an entry point into fiction for most for most people who are in the literati, you know, or in the literary community. And then I I give uh, a lot of voice to Miss Reba so that she kind of takes over the story as the moral center of the story. They both are very empathic characters to me, empathetic characters to me. The white man is a little less likable, at least at the beginning for most readers. But Miss Reba's had so many struggles and she has such passion and strong feeling that we can identify with. I, I feel like I, I did a trickster move where I, where I have us as readers kind of sneak up on her world and then jump, jump right into it as a place that we experience when we read as a place that's surprising to us or different from what we're used to. And that's something, you know, it's something that I've experienced on my journey. So I wanted other people to just kind of follow that and get a little bit tricked into what I was writing about and then realizing the power and strength of this other voice. It's not a secondary voice. It is equal to the white voice in the novel. The white voice is mostly within the world. The white gaze, as Toni Morrison says, and the black world is intersects with the white gaze because, you know, that's, that's realistic. And, but it also has harkens to elements of the story, places in the past that are outside the white gaze. So I, I'm playing with some ideas here about how we see things and how we, how we see our world using different craft techniques. In addition to how we see the world, what was striking to me is this idea of how we listen to the world and to each other and listen to what is beyond the world, the spirits, the ancestors, the trees. You know, your novel is, is so sensory in every kind of way, but I definitely get something that's coming in through my ears and sort of this goosebump feeling that there's something beyond just myself. It's a wonderful alchemy. Hmm. Golly, thank you. Alchemy, what a wonderful word. Love that. I think it's a little different and it acknowledges the spirit world. One of the things that I was interested in is how do people speak to the dead? They are aware of the dead. We're all aware of the dead in different ways. Some of us turn away and say, well, that's over. Don't think about that person again. Some of us grieve and then uh, as part of the grieving process, we'll talk to a picture or, or think of or hear voices in our heads. And that sounds like we're crazy, but it happens all the time. Right. And, and, and yeah, so Rand has a grief process and Miss Reba has a grief process. Hers is a little bit different. Her grief is twisted around anger and a sense of injustice. And it makes it kind of a cruel grief for her. And her spirits, she's so lonely, she's been lonely for so long that her memories and her spirit world um, are very vivid parts of her daily life. So her main idea is vengeance, but she finds strength. And because her father memorialized the dead in those cedar statues, 
she talks to them. That's a form of outsider art. The colonel talks to the portrait of his wife over the mantle. So there's this, you know, communing that happens in different ways. And we think they're different. But if you really look at it, it's kind of the same. And why shouldn't you speak out loud to the dead? Why shouldn't you sense uh, presences around you? So I really love that aspect of the novel. Mm -hmm. I myself am aware of the dead, just as voices mostly in my ear or or a vision or a, a moment. You know, in this way, I'm a little bit like Miss Reba. I'm aware of uh, the presence of ancestors and the dead around me because I, I live in a, a very quiet world. Perhaps they get a chance to speak to me because I live surrounded by nature. The sounds I hear during the day are not man-made. And so maybe, you know, I'm just able to be open to those kinds of thoughts. Of course, when you write, you're alone. It's the lonely art. You're not jamming with your friends in a gig or whatever. So you live in silence and in listening, as you say. And so maybe we can he- maybe we can hear things that other people don't don't hear. I like to think so, but I do think it takes some effort and some trust, maybe some faith, to be open to the idea that that there's something to listen to. So, Marjorie, this feels to me somehow related to what I've read about you, which is that you read poetry to trees. Would you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Gosh, you know, where I live, it's mostly pastures and forests of uh, mostly planted pines, but some mixed hardwoods and so on. And I've seen a number of clear cuts. And the first, so the first time I read poetry to trees was when I was aware that some of the pines on our property that, that we really loved, they're part of our community as much as the people are we're going to have to be cut. You know, there was just a need for income and take care of the health of an elder. And that makes sense to me. But I wanted to honor the trees in some way. So I, I packed up a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a book of Mary Oliver poems. And I went and found a, one of the bigger pine trees and sat with my back against the trunk on the sunny side and just felt that warmth and uh, read for an hour or so to the trees and told them I was, I, I loved them and appreciated them. And I was sorry to say goodbye to them. If you've ever been around a clear cut close by, and I have, I guess, three or four times on my neighbor's land in different places, it's a horrible crashing and screeching and a thunder, kind of a roar and thunderous kind of death that you notice and you sense around you. I just wanted to honor that. I also have a tree I usually say good morning to every morning. And when I'm uh, reading, sometimes I will sing to a tree. This tree that I'm talking about is special. It's just behind my house. It's a big old pecan tree. And it shows me how to survive. It's lost a lot of branches. It's lived through a hurricane. And when other trees went down during this hurricane, this tree dropped a branch, which plunged five feet into the ground and held and propped itself up. Oh my up gosh. <laughs> and kept, yeah. So this tree, when I saw that, you know, it was a terrible loss. It was a major branch, but you know, the 
tree knew to sacrifice for its own survival. And I just thought that was beautiful. So I've known this tree a long time now, 40 years, I think. And uh, I, uh, I'm aging as this tree is aging. I'm just kind of keeping it company and it keeps me company. You know, I'm about to get really woo-woo if I haven't been already, but I talk to this tree and it speaks back. If you've ever been around a pecan tree when there are light breezes or even no breezes, the fronds of the leaves are like big hands or palms, and it just takes the slightest breeze for them to shimmer and move and make sort of a delicate, delicate dance and so I, I, I feel that it's speaking to me when it does that, whether there's a breeze or not. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. What tips do you have for writers who want to find inspiration from place, wherever they are? Because it seems like you're so tuned in to what is around you and kind of the magic of place. What do you recommend as, as an approach for writers who aren't that tuned in? Well, First of all, be in that place. And there are different lovely kinds of places to be besides nature. But if you're in nature, uh, take your shoes off and walk around on the bare earth or the moss or whatever's there. Sit down and just listen. And, you know, I think when people meditate and get into their bodies, they notice the small breezes that touch their skin, spend time noticing the... <laughs> The smells, if you're in nature, you know, just be in nature and be by yourself. So you don't be in a big crowd tromping around and have some, some silence and listen. And I think a place will speak to you. Of course, this, the place where I live speaks to me, but also the strong emotions that I feel about people around me and the strong emotions I feel of attachment to the land and the nature or the fuel. And so it's not the nature itself, it's the strong feeling. So as a writer, you have to foster empathy in yourself. And I feel the kind of writing that I like to do and I like to read uh, walks away from cynicism, but encounters the difficult. Right. Uh, walks away from the sarcastic or ironic voice, but uses irony because irony is also how we live walks away from separation between the narrator and the world. It goes deep enough into point of view of each character. And I use close third person to capture the inner voices rather than simply relying on action. So for me, sense of place also relates to history. So if you learn the history and listen to the voices of people who live in a place, then those things can be reflected in your work if they provide interest mm -hmm. to you. You know, I think it's kind of a prerequisite for writers to be kind of whole body inspired and obsessed, a little bit obsessed, unable to let something go. It's in the writing, though, that you discover what it is you right. think. And the hand that writes has its own resources and its own connections to the depths of feeling and language in the mind. So I noticed this when I do prompt writing in my classes. It's just phenomenal to watch and hear when people go into the writing and 
an entire world comes out that they never knew was right. So, you know, the writing itself is part of that sensitivity process that we need to foster. Yes. Maybe in the vein of what we were just talking about, I think mentoring writers, being generous to writers, connecting with other writers is a really necessary element of a writer's life. Uh, We believe that we must be alone, and I did that for a long time. I did not have early, early mentors. I was very shy about my writing. And, you know, maybe there's some self-protection in that, and maybe that's a good thing. Wait until you know a little bit of what you're doing before you start foisting your writing on people. But, you know, going to workshops, leading workshops, being part of a writer's group, and being generous in your attention to other writers, I think is a really essential part of having a support system yourself as a writer. At the very least, it means that you'll have people to celebrate with who really understood what you went through to accomplish when you do finally publish your book. Speaking of celebration, I know you're on a book tour right now. How do you feel now that your work has been released into the world? Well, I will say that before the tour started, I was pretty anxious and I had all these checkboxes of things that I had to line up to do to do it right and make sure that, you know, my book was a success. And I just let that go. And that was the best thing I ever did. You know, book tour is about the chance to connect with people who are reading my book or who might read my book and to really enjoy that connection. I'm loving reading to people. Supporters for my work have come out of the blue, and it's just early days. It's just the first few weeks, but I decided it was the tour of joy. Hmm. That's where I'm going with this, and I'm just finding so many, you know, there's a lot of organizational things you've got to do on a book tour, but I'm really enjoying the reading and talking about the book because um, it's a long time that I dreamed of this day coming. So That's wonderful. I'm so grateful not only for the, the book, but for all of the work that you do and for spending time with me today. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to read to us some excerpts from Indigo Field? I'd be delighted to. And I, I like to read the very beginning because it really kind of sets the mood and the scene. But then... Uh, we can read from Miss Reba. Wonderful. Okay, so this is from Chapter One, Indigo Field. Tucked between the Cedar River and the monstrous pines of the Ghouli Ridge lies an ancient field, tangled and wild, knee-high with last year's scrub, strewn with rocks the size of crouching men and sleeping deer. Its soil is deep and loamy, It has been planted, but never plowed. It is spring, and up on the ridge, a breeze lifts the broad crowns of the ghoulie pines, releasing yellow clouds of pollen that float across the highway and come to rest on every flat surface of Stonehaven Downs Retirement Village, including the hood of Colonel Randolph Jefferson Lee's new Honda Accord. West of the ridge, across Spill Creek, the breeze raises wild bees from the hollow heart of Miss Reba's sycamore. 
The bees rise up from that dark cove of sweetness, hover over three strange cedar statues in the yard, then head across the creek and through the woods. They pause over Jolene Blake's tidy fields, then glimmer up the ghoulie ridge and gather among the old pines humming. The ghoulie pines have lived through drought and flood. They know the glaze of ice and the glimmer of sun on their cracked, cupped bark, each scale like a small ear alert for sound. The giant trunks sense the movements of vast oceans. They taste the breeze and know a storm will rise along the coast of Africa. They listen to the stories of the field. So the beginning, the very beginning jumps right into the colonel's life. He of the pollen on his car. I'll just read a few paragraphs of that. Colonel Randolph Jefferson Lee, retired army prepares for his daily run, which he's lied about for months, telling Anne he will stay in the neighborhood, he will call her on the cell if he gets in trouble, and he will keep it down to a stroll, a slow walk, no running. Rand glances guiltily at Anne sitting at the kitchen table, her fluffy, just-washed, white-blonde hair, her head tilted in that funny way of hers, peering through her fancy multicolor reading glasses at the paper. The lovebirds chatter in their cage next to the window. Anne's deep into her morning routine, looking out the window now with pursed lips, something on her mind. He wonders sometimes if she thinks about Malaysia, their last posting, and all that happened there. But now she turns to the lovebirds in their cage, lifts the latch, and that mischievous grin, that morning joy, is back. God, she's a beauty. How did he ever catch a woman like her? By pretending to be a man who belonged in a place like this. So Rand is quite a fish out of water, and to get away from this uncomfortable place where he lives every day, he runs. And Miss Reba is my, Miss Reba Jones is my uh, character, elderly black woman who lives across the highway. And uh, she is grieving terribly the murder of her niece, a young woman who she raised from a child. Um, She's in grief and she's also in rage and she goes back and forth between the two. So I'm going to jump ahead to the intersection of these two worlds. And what you need to know is that Miss Reba keeps a list of crimes against her family by white people in the back of her Bible. Um, She keeps to herself. She knows people talk about her. Her family's considered the hard luck people in her community. And she's lonely. She speaks to the spirit of the dead. And one of those spirits is Tuscarora Lucy, uh, who is one of her ancestors. Up ahead, there's that white man in the red ball cap she's seen before, jogging in place in front of the Sunrise Gas and Grill. Skinny white legs sticking out his shorts, talking on a cell phone. Old man should have more dignity than to run around half-naked like that. She's looking at him so hard that for the first time in her life, she misses her turn onto Field Road. 
Now the man goes to cross the highway, not looking where he's going, still talking on that phone, and her with bald tires, road wet, got to jam on brakes and slide to stop. Man runs into her car, hits it hard, goes down cell phone flying, and she can't see him. Lord Jesus, has she killed a white man in broad daylight? right here in front of the Sunrise Grill. But no, she can see him crawling around in her side mirror, picking up his phone, pushing up off the ground, looking surprised to see her sitting there like where he comes from. There are no cars on the roads. Man puts his hands up like he's under arrest. Mouths, sorry. Miss Reba shakes her head. Man wasn't hurt at all. Her heart may need repair. Man ducks past the Stonehaven sign, limps in that way. She sits there frozen, and in her little eye she sees a man, a white man, a different man, laying in the road, and the memory makes her legs tremble. Old Lucy says, that white man out on the highway, tell the truth. You sorry you damned on brakes. You wish you'd run him over. Established in 2017, Artist Soapbox is a podcast production studio based in North Carolina. Artist Soapbox produces original scripted audio fiction and an ongoing interview podcast about the creative process. We cultivate aspiring audio dramatists and producers and we partner with organizations and individuals to create new audio content. For more information and ways to support our work, check out artistsoapbox.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Artist Soapbox theme song is Ashes by Juliana Finch. <laughs>